you know, after I signed that big contract, I remember the next day at practice, I was out, I was balling. And I remember running up to John and, you know, John Snyder and I, we have a great relationship. So, you know, when I say this, know that it was just in the fun context of our relationship. So I go up, to, I catch this touchdown pass and I go up to John and say, you didn't pay me enough. <laughs> <laughs> and know? to be clear, what, what did they pay you? That You had a $46 million contract. <laughs> Do I have that right? You did, yes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm super excited to share my conversation with Super Bowl champion and former NFL wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, Doug Baldwin. On the surface, you may think this episode is just another excuse for me to selfishly bring in another famous athlete into my office to talk about sports. And I guess that's part of it. But Doug Baldwin is so much more than just a successful football player. With deep roots in service and a strong moral compass, Doug ultimately came to my attention because of the amazing things he's been doing for the community of Seattle post-football. And for someone who's been notoriously described by NFL commentators as angry Doug Baldwin, I gotta say, he sure seems like a nice guy. In our conversation, we discussed Doug's early childhood struggle for validation, his reasons for retiring from the NFL, and his motivation for building better communities wherever he goes. I am super grateful that Doug agreed to come in and share his story. And even if you know nothing about sports, this conversation is sure to inspire you in ways you did not expect. So let's get into it. It's really a, a pleasure for me today to be talking to Doug Baldwin. And some of you that follow this might say, well, who's Doug Baldwin? Is he in the retail industry? <laughs> He's not, unless we find out something today. But Doug was an extremely successful NFL football player here in Seattle. So I know a lot about him from that as a fan, although this is the first time we're meeting each other. So, Doug, nice to meet you. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I, I think when we'll get into this, I, I want to hear you know about your background and everything because it's super fascinating and you know the success you had in football. But what really brought us to having this conversation is a guy that used to work here and is just recently retired and really involved in a lot of community stuff. He says, you should really talk to Doug Baldwin. And I know, before we'd mentioned that, that you've got this big reputation in town as, as a person that's doing a lot of good work and trying to make our community a better place to live. So I, I think that's super compelling, too. So we'll, we'll get into that as well. So I guess, Doug, you know, the first thing I want to talk about is just give us a little uh, idea about your background. I mean, here you are in Seattle after finishing your career, but you're originally from Florida, right? I am. Pensacola, Florida. Okay. So tell me a little about growing up and what that was like and that help, how that helped inform really your life. <laughs> You said we have an hour for this podcast? <laughs> well, we're going to hit the highlights here, Doug. <laughs> okay. Just the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So if we're looking at a map, right, my grandparents on my mom's side, they lived in Fort Walton Beach. 
And then my grandparents on my dad's side, they lived in Pensacola, Florida. In the middle was Gulf Breeze. And so my parents decided to live in Gulf Breeze. Not a lot of people know about Gulf Breeze or Fort Walton Beach. Yeah, but I got to admit, I've never heard of Gulf Breeze. Yeah, so, but more, more <laughs> people have heard of Pensacola. So I yeah. always say Pensacola. But um, I also spent a lot of time in Pensacola. So Pensacola was where my mom, both of my parents worked. Uh, my mom worked in the administrative side of the Salvation Army. And on the back end of that was a community center. I spent all my time there, right? So since I was probably before six years old, but when I first started playing football was six years old. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in those uh, spaces. And, you know, you, and I, 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 was able, I was exposed to various walks of life. Gulf Breeze was a predominantly affluent area, mostly white Americans. Um, Pensacola was more of a diverse background and Fort Walton was a more diverse background. And so I was exposed to that as an, at an early age too. And what did your dad do? You said your mom was a Salvation Army? Yeah, my dad, he spent 35 years on the police force with the Pensacola Police Department. Oh. Yeah, so he was uh, very involved in the community, right? Um, knew people from all walks of life, right? Different backgrounds. And so my family was very engaged in the community in that area. So, you know, it was just kind of a natural progression for me wherever I would go, just to kind of get ingrained in the community and try to support it in ways that my family, my mom, my dad, they'd modeled for me when I was younger. So, you know, you became this super successful athlete, and I'm sure that was true fairly early. Did you identify as a young person, as an athlete? If someone said, oh, here's Doug Baldwin. Is that how you saw yourself? Yeah, you know, for the most part. I mean, I when I first started my, when I was six years old, I quit that first year. It was too hot. I didn't like to get hit, right? It's football. It's a violent sport. <laughs> yeah. Getting uh, hit is not the fun part of football. No, it's not. Sure. It's not. And even at six years old, it's just, you yeah. know, the, the humidity humidity in Florida is just atrocious. But anyways, that's a different story. Um, so, I, you know, my, my second year, when I went out, I, I told my mom I was going to try. I wanted to quit again. She wouldn't let me quit. I ended up making the game-saving tackle in the championship game. And that's what propelled my career in football. You know, truth be told, I never aspired to be in the NFL. Like, actually, were your parents into sports and stuff? Was that something that was an interest around the house and um, what have you? My mom was an athlete, but more so than anything, they just wanted me to do extracurricular activities, right? They wanted me to stay out of trouble, like make sure that I'm developing as a young man. And so they always placed me in stuff after school. And football was just, it was one of the sports that I really excelled at. So did you, your parents have it sounded like they've got kind of a well-rounded approach to what they were trying to instill to you. So was school and academics a big part of your life, too, at that stage when you were growing up? I didn't actually start taking school seriously until I was in the sixth grade. And it was because, by chance, I had this amazing math teacher. He instilled a, a different level of discipline in me. His name was Mr. Eubanks. I actually saw him a couple years ago. He was the teacher that kind of pulled me aside when I was acting out and breathed life into me you know, told me who I could be and who I should be and not what I thought I was or what I was being at that time. You know, there's there's a number of factors that, that played into it. It wasn't, you know, we're not we're not dealing with this in a vacuum and it's not black and white because, you know, we had I had childhood trauma that I was dealing with. Right. I had experiential things that were kind of taking my attention away from schooling at the time. But Mr. Eubanks kind of, you know, he, he re redirected that energy and said, you could put that energy here. The combativeness, the competitiveness, um, and the strive to perform at a really, really high level in whatever I was doing. And, you know, don't get me wrong, my parents were always pushing me to do well in school, but 
as we know, when, when parents tell kids to do something, they typically don't listen, right? It's gotta be somebody else <laughs> that they appreciate and respect that tells yeah. them and, and pushes them in that direction. And Mr. Eubanks was that person for me. Well, so you know, part of the reason I'm asking about the school part of it, so you're, you're going along, you're doing your thing, you're an athlete, and you're obviously having success, and you end up going to Stanford, and they just don't recruit anybody. <laughs> they just don't admit anybody. If you get a chance to go to Stanford, you really should go there. I mean, yeah. in terms of you're just if you're viewing it through the lens of the opportunities it creates for you for life, yeah, right? No doubt. So, so how did that come to be that you're getting recruited? You're you're playing football. Did you envision yourself playing foot, college football? Or no? I mean, I honestly just because of the circumstances that I grew up in, I was really living day to day. You know, I had no real aspirations of what I was going to be or what I wanted to do, but. Um, a, a member of the Pensacola News Journal, which was our local newspaper, he was the father of a person who worked at Stanford University in the scouting department. And so because I was in that area, he was watching me play and he reached out to his son and said, hey, you need to come check this guy out. And so they did. They came to my spring game. They saw me play and then they offered me a scholarship. Um, it was the only D1A school to recruit me. There was another school, Louisiana Lafayette, that was closer to home. You know, very close to my family, was kind of scared to go across the country, right? It's a, a totally different world. Uh, but to your point, once you get offered from Stanford, you can't pass oh, it up. So well, my mom was adamant about me going there. <laughs> uh, smart move. So, I mean, did you put up real gaudy numbers in high school and stuff? Because, I mean, you think about where you were there in Florida, it's such a hotbed of football, mm -hmm. that whole Southeast thing. Yeah. I'm surprised you slipped through the cracks of not attracting more interest. I had two solid years in high school. My se my junior and my senior year were, were decent years. Um, I think the same reason why I didn't get much, you know, attention post-college career and leading up to the draft is because I'm, you know, I'm not, you look at me, I'm not a typical, I don't look like a typical football player, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 5'10 on a good day, a <laughs> hundred and at that time, 170 pounds, maybe, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't a blazing fast runner. I was fast, but I wasn't, you know, top tier fast, like a lot of the athletes in Florida were. And so I didn't stand out in that way. And yeah, my numbers weren't to that level. Our, our team wasn't that great. We did have a really great year, my junior year, which, you know, I was really proud about, but no, I didn't put up gaudy numbers. And so, you know, it was, it makes sense of why I wasn't recruited, highly recruited. So, okay. So Stanford comes calling and you go take your visit and everything. And mm -hmm. yeah, so talk about that. Like your, your parents and just the calculus you're doing in your mind. Like, is this what I want to do? Stanford, this is an amazing opportunity for me academically or mm -hmm. it's big time. It's going to help my football career. Like, how did you think about it as an 18 year old kid coming out of high school? I didn't. I didn't. Um, <laughs> you know, again. Really? Yeah. Honestly, yeah. a lot of it was just living day by day, you know, but when you get to that campus and you see how amazing that campus is, you know, there's a, there's a certain essence that you feel when you get to the Stanford campus. And, you know, I was all in, um, but my mindset, and I even remember this, like the, the day before, you know, we, we, my family, we drove across the country from Florida to California. We got there the day before I was, you know, to, to report. And I remember we were in a, a big parking lot across the street from the campus. And, you know, I was in the back of the parking lot where there was no cars and I was doing sprints. Right. Because I'm thinking like, OK, I'm about to go to camp. I got to be ready. So I'm, I'm not missing a day of training. Right. And that's how I was thinking. It was just day to day. I got to survive. And so my mindset was just, I'm going to work really, really hard and I'll see where it takes me. 
that's how I've how I lived my life up to that point, and to some degree how I still live my life. Now there's much more planning, right? I have a wife, I have three kids, so I got to plan a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, life it was at that point was just like you know, put your head down, grind, figure it out, and then see what happens when you look up. And you know, I think that definitely gave me an edge to some degree in school and also with sports, but also think it was a detriment to some degree because I really didn't enjoy it as much as I would like to, because I was so focused on just trying to survive. And when you say survive, like survive football wise, like, you know, all make, of it, or just all make, of it. Make, academic, academically, all of it, all of it, you know, and, and so the bar kind of got raised for you across the board going to college. For sure. For sure. And, you know, when, when you leave a small town and, you know, everybody's congratulating you going like, there was, I guess there's a sense of pressure. I didn't want to go back. You know, I didn't want to fail those people who supported me at that point and propelled me to get to Stanford. So I had to make it. So at what point when you were in college and doing all that, did you think, you know what, I might be able to actually have a career playing football? Yeah. So not many people know this story and I don't like sharing it because Jim Harbaugh and I have a, a very contentious relationship even to this day. Is that right? He was your coach. He was my coach. And, you know, I, I think... I'm learning more about that his perspective at that time as I get older and I mature and you know now as a father and thinking about like why why did he make some of the decisions that he did while we were there you know he was really really hard on myself and Richard Sherman to be honest and you know there's just there was a lot of contention in that time and I almost quit I almost left Stanford my junior year because you know, I just felt like I wasn't getting a a, a fair shot. And I don't so when you say that. that, like you weren't get, they weren't throwing you the ball enough. You, they weren't. Not, I wasn't even honestly. I wasn't even really playing. I, I played a little bit my sophomore year. Thought I had some success, and that the next year I was gonna, you know, start moving forward. But for whatever reason, I just I never, from freshman year to junior year, I never really got a foothold in, in, a, in a position. And I just kept getting pushed around and moved around. And I felt like I was never able to sit down and like demonstrate my capabilities. That didn't happen until my senior year when um, the two, or there's three receivers of he- ahead of me and two of them got hurt in our very first game, before our very first game. And so I had to start. And in that very first game I had over a hundred yards and two touchdowns and I never looked back. Okay. And so, you know, for most athletes, most football players, your junior year is an important year because yeah. that's when the scouts take the most time to look at you, right? And then they evaluate you over the next year and then see what happens for the draft. But so I missed that junior year. So when you're talking about you thought you might want to transfer quit, is it because I think I want to play in the NFL and I might not get enough exposure here? I need to go someplace where I no, can it wasn't even related to football. It was just well, I, yeah, it was related to football in the aspect that I was not having a so, good time. So it was a happiness thing. It was a happiness thing. It was, you know, because football was such a, an important part of my life, when that wasn't going well, I wasn't healthy in other aspects of my okay. life, right? And so I remember calling my mom up and I was like, look, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we got to find a way either for me to stay here and not play football anymore, or I need to go, I need to come back home. And my mom was she tells the story way better than I do because she, you know, she has the emotional side of it from a parent's perspective. But um, I hung up on her when she she kept pressing me. No, you're just being, you know, I forget what the specific language she was using, but, you know, she's telling me to toughen up. Right. Um, but I was in a very dark place and I hung up on her and then she kept calling me back and I didn't answer. And, you know, obviously she's worried about her son. So it took me a while. It took me 
I, th I think several months to come kind of get out of that. And I uh, eventually came back to the practice facility and I was just like, <clears throat> you know what? I'm just gonna put my head down, screw it. I don't care what Harbaugh says, what anybody else says. I'm just gonna go out here, do my job and get through this last year. The reason why I brought up Jim Harbaugh is because we were playing uh, against Cal, which is the biggest rivalry between you know Cal and Stanford. And I went up and made a catch over a player and scored a touchdown and I'm running to the sideline and Jim comes and grabs me and he says, you're gonna play in the NFL, right? And yeah, that was, it was, it was, it was weird and cause was it because he'd never given you that kind of encouragement never, before? never gave me encouragement before you know and it was very awkward for me because i was when he said that like i absorbed it as a positive comment but it was coming from this negative source and so you know i really wanted to <laughs> i really wanted to punch him at the time when he said it you know that was, that, was, that was my body felt like i wanted to punch him in the face when he said that but I also took that as maybe maybe he was trying to propel me in a different direction and yeah so when he said it in that moment that's when i started to think oh maybe maybe this is a potential possibility so you ended up you come out and you're undrafted mm -hmm. was that unexpected did you expect to be drafted no i expected to be undrafted but there was the hope right the eternal hope that so maybe somebody would call my teams name and like all that and people saying oh yeah we're gonna take you if you're available was there any of that talk no i had the minnesota vikings came to the, the facility uh, to stanford to work some of us out and then i went to a regional combine uh at the 49ers facility which jim harbaugh was now the head coach at and yeah, so that was it. That's See, all that I had. See, that must have been weird if your head coach was, doesn't draft was, you. What does that say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so this time's coming. Did you have an agent and stuff? Or are you I just kind of like, maybe someone will call me, maybe they won't. I don't know. Or, or were you trying to like, okay, let's see if we can make this thing happen. Yeah, no, I had a great agent. I still call him my agent to this day. But um, one of my coach, my receivers coach at the time, Aaron Moorhead, he played in the NFL for five years. He was with the Indianapolis Colts. His agent was Buddy Baker. And, you know, when I was going out looking for uh, representation, Aaron told me, he said, hey, you should meet with Buddy. And so I met with him and immediately fell in love with him because he was just a, a down to earth, genuine underdog, hungry and, you know, to some degree, angry uh, man in, in this realm. And he was super competitive and I could feel his energy. And obviously me being super competitive, we just meshed. And so he was the one who was telling me at the time, he's like, yeah, I'm having all these conversations. They like your potential, but they don't see it as a draftable grade potential. And so, you know, he was kind of the one that gave me the hard truth that I wasn't, I was most likely not going to be on drafted. What? And was it your size? Was it your stats? Was yeah, it your speed it. or what, what was it? Size, speed, the stats as well. Uh, but, you know, from what I heard from multiple folks is that I also didn't get a great recommendation from my head coach. At oh, Stanford. OK. OK, so draft happens. You didn't get drafted. So then what happens? You get the phone calls like, hey, we want you to come work out for us. The ironic situation is that year was also the lockout year. So after the draft, you couldn't talk to anybody because they oh. still hadn't worked out the CBA agreement. So during the draft, that's when I was getting calls from different teams, like saying, hey, you know, we're probably not going to draft you, but, you know, we would love to, to bring you in when the, when the lockout ends and give you a tryout. And the Seahawks was one of the, were, were one of those teams. And then Sherm got drafted here, and he had been talking to the team, to the Seahawks about me. And so he was kind of the, one of the major catalysts for me to come to Seattle, right? It's, I got a teammate on the team that I know really well. I mean, Sherm and I are still 
close friends to this day. He was one of my best friends during that time at Stanford. You know, we were going through a lot of stuff together. So him coming to Seattle was kind of the catalyst for me to come here too. So this, I think this is probably the best place to interject this. So, you know, when I was telling, actually I was talking to my brother and cousin and different people, oh, Doug Baldwin's coming. They go, you mean angry Doug Baldwin? <laughs> and I'm like thinking, yeah, I know that's kind of a nickname about him, but if I go back to the genesis of how this came to be that I was going to bring you in, it wasn't because you're angry, Doug Baldwin. It's because good guy, Doug Baldwin. So did that start to shape your persona a little bit? That Because you even talked about, I saw some interviews, you talked about having a chip on your shoulder and you talked about that motivation. And you even just said, you know, some of the anger stuff. It, it, at this stage of your life, is this become kind of part of who you are and your brand is that you've got this determination because you're kind of angry. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say it was intentional by any means. It was just me being me, right? Like I was thrust into an environment where I was the smallest, most, most of the times one of the smallest guys on the team, wasn't the fastest, wasn't the strongest, right? So I had to figure out how do I make a statement that I belong here? And, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a better term, you got to survive. And the way that I survived was, I'm going to run through this wall. If you're in my way, so be it, you know, and I, and I, yeah, I came across as aggressive, right. And angry, <laughs> so, but, but that wasn't intentional that you were just being you. Or? I was just, I was just being me. And that, you know, that's a lot of that is, you know, there's, there's a whole um, conversation about psychology around why the demographic of folks who play football is the demographic of folks who play football, right? A lot of these guys in the NFL who play this violent sport, and I don't call it a contact sport because ballroom dancing is a contact sport, right? Football is a violent collision sport. And you have to be a little bit crazy to be in that sport and to thrive and to, and to do well at it, right? At the levels that we played at. And that comes from experiences, childhood experiences that thrust you into that mindset, into that that realm. And you know, this is this is not just a a hobby. This is not just a like, oh, I enjoy playing football. No, this is a way out of my situation, my environment, right? My cycle. And also, you know, there's there's trauma, there's generational trauma, which we now know the trauma that was experienced by many of our ancestors, it, it changes your DNA. Right. And so, you know, we, we are more we have a more propensity to be in survival mode. And that survival mode was definitely relevant for me uh, in my younger years as an adolescent and then also in the sports world. And I carried that through football. And, you know, is the translation is like somebody's trying to prevent me from putting food on the table. So they got to go. And, you know, we've tapped into it from childhood experiences, but it's still there, even though we're adults with, with kids and families now. But uh, yeah, I think that's always hard. You know, you talk about athletes who they've accomplished so much and there's a lot of drive, a lot of focus and all that. But when that competitive thing goes away and then they're just, they're living their life, they have to channel it yeah. in some Somehow. place. Yeah. And some guys don't make that transition particularly well. No. And that transition for everybody is challenging. Like I, I know, and I, I'm sure you saw this on some of my interviews, like it took me a long time to get out of that dark place after I retired, you know, because to your point, I had no place to put this energy. And even to this day, when fall rolls around, you know, my wife will tell you my, I'm, I'm more amped up. Yeah. You know, I feel that every fall I can feel like my body is ready to go out there on the football field. And that's just because I've been doing this since I was six years old. So what was it like? Okay, you made the team. Like, did it, did it feel to you like, 
okay, I've made it now, or or was that just another log in the fire around the determination motivation? Yeah, it was just another log in the fire. And, you know, again, I was undrafted, so there was no guarantee that I was going to stay on the team. Yes, I made the team, I made the opening day roster, but there was no guarantee. But that like week to week, they could say, okay, you're right. gone now. And that is the, that's the nature of the business in the NFL. And were you like, in your mind, was like, I'm the last receiver? Or did you feel like, oh, no, I've made it and I'm I'm in the rotation here or I'm just, I'm a special teams guy and I'm hanging on here? I don't think I felt stable or secure until, you know, I signed the my third contract. And that's when I felt like, okay, maybe. So that was what, like 2016? That was your mm-hmm. big, kind of your big payday yeah, contract? it was. And that was, that was the time I was like, oh, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe I am. I do add value here. and Yeah, and to be clear, you'd won a Super Bowl, you'd been to two <laughs> Super Bowls, you'd had some big stats, you were ranked in the top 100 of all players in NFL. You clearly had made it by then, but it, it, honestly, it wasn't until then you felt like, okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't immediate. There was still this survival, like trying to prove my value and my worth in the world, not just in the sports arena, but in the world, right? As a young kid, that's just... The, the the experiences that I had, like I was always trying to prove that I am like to be loved. I mean, again, this is a much broader conversation, but <laughs> oh, we're having the broad conversation right now. <laughs> I know, I feel it. Um, it. It's a safety thing, right? When when I was a child, if I didn't if I didn't feel that my worth and my value was being accepted or being acknowledged, it felt like an unsafe place, and so there was no comfort in reaching some type of pinnacle. It was just like, okay, I have to continue to prove my worth and my value because at any point it could deteriorate and then I'm not safe again. So you talk about safety. I mean, it sounded like you had a really supportive family structure growing up. So where does the lack of safety kind of Yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, I, I, love, I love my mom. I love my dad. But they also grew up in very hard conditions. And they brought that to parenthood. And as their son, I experienced a lot of that. You know, and, and it was really, really hard at times. It was really, really hard. And, you know, it took me a while to come back to my dad and come back to my mom. But now as a parent myself, I'm realizing that, like, life is hard. And they grew up in environments and situations that they did not ask to be in. And they were only trying to make the best decisions that they could with what they had. And so I look at it from that perspective, that angle now. But, yeah, a lot of this survival, this, you know, trying to figure out worth and value um, that came from those childhood experiences. Yeah. Okay. So you had this eight year career. I mean, you had almost 500 receptions and 49 touchdowns. I mean, you know, you do want a Super Bowl. You'd had a lot of personal recognition. You had team success. You'd had financial success. But then you, you had some injuries. Is, is that what ended up ending your career at that point was injuries? Yeah. So it was, it was multiple things. Um, and I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but, uh, you know, the, the, the trajectory of the team was challenging for me. My my daughter was about to be born. And then, yeah, I had several surgeries that I had to go through. And at that time, I'm thinking like, man, like, you know, I'm going to have to go through this surgery, this surgery, this surgery, and then I'm going to have to come back from those surgeries. And my body is already, and you know, my right knee is still messed up. Like, you know, the, some of the conversations was like, oh, you you're going to need a knee replacement. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I'm 30 years old. <laughs> I just, I came to the understanding that like, okay, what is my exit strategy here? I need to be able to play with my kids when I'm older. I need to be able to pick up my daughter and run around with her 
And that was kind of, you know, that was, it was blurry at that time. And I had always, I was adamant about, I, I wanted a family, but I wanted to be a great father. I wanted to be a great husband and I wanted to be a great father. Those were my priorities in life. And so I felt like I needed to focus on that. And, and I don't regret it because it was what was important for me. And I think when I'm, when I'm watching my daughters as they develop into young women, I recognize the importance and the fruit of me making that decision. So you had a real intense focus because of the time of your life with you know your wife and the children, you guys having kids together, that's an intense moment. But at what point did you start pivoting like, okay, I got to do more than just that. I mean, you have other things you're, you're wanting to accomplish and mm-hmm. you're certainly in a position to accomplish because, you know, you've, you've got notoriety, you've got success, you have money and stuff. So what, what were you thinking about there in terms of, okay, I want to apply a lot of energy to this family thing, but I also want to have another act to my life that's not just about football, it's about something else. Yeah. My wife is an amazing, amazing person. During that time, she was revealing more of myself to myself. So she's kind of holding up a mirror to you at this whole, <laughs> this yeah, whole time? Yeah, she's, she's an amazing human being, um, a beautiful soul who challenged me in a lot of ways and gave me a lot of grace as I was going through my hard times. And what I realized is that in order for my daughters to be as healthy as they possibly can, my wife has to be healthy. And so I, I took that lesson that she taught me and I'm looking out in the world and in the environment that we, in the spaces that we're in, it's like, if I want the spaces that my daughters are going to be in to be healthy, I have to help those spaces be healthy, right? Those spaces need to be healthy so that my daughters, when they come into these spaces, when they go to school, when they go to the rec center, right? Those places have to be healthy, safe environments so that they can grow and flourish and be just and be children. Um, Because that's what I experienced when I was growing up in the back end of the Salvation Army. And so that's where, you know, don't get me wrong, we had started this community center a decade ago. But, you know, the the community center was just like, okay, that's where I came from. Like, I would like to give back in that same way of what I experienced growing up. But now having children, I recognize the true value and the true importance of having a place like that, a space for kids where they can go and just be kids. And I'm seeing it now through the lens of my daughters. And so that just became more relevant, more important and more it's become a deeper passion of mine. So was it purely a philanthropic effort when you talk about developing this community center or was it somehow combined with other things around development or business and stuff? And I'm, I'm you know, cause you've got Vault 89, you got the sweatshirt on here. So that is that, that's a company. Mm-hmm. Is, is it a nonprofit company or? Great question. Cause everybody asked me that question. So no. So Vault 89 is a for-profit entity. It's an investment vehicle. And, and one of your projects is building this community center? Correct. Okay. Um, as we all know in business, you got to find a way to sustain your business, right? And the community center, even though it's a nonprofit, is a business. And so we have to find ways to sustain it. And so Vault 89 is this investment vehicle where we do, yes, we do traditional investments. Like we have a, a great communications company that we invested in that's blowing up. We invested in Boom Boona Coffee. Shout is this all your own money? Or are you out you know, raising funds? No, this, is, this, this, is my, this is my own money because I'm also a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's my own money, but you know we're finding ways to invest in traditional companies that are, you know, doing really well, but we're also want to invest in uh, impactful ways, right? So there's a lot of initiatives around this region that we invest in. And and a lot of, you know, a lot of the things we don't talk about, because that's not, that's not the purpose of it. And we don't want to spend the money on marketing, because we'd rather spend the money on actually making the impact. 
And the ROI is either, you know, to some degree is financial because we got to keep the lights on. We want to support the community center's operations, but it's also just to see the impact in the community because when the community is healthier, I think everything is healthier, not just business and not just the return of, you know, the ROI of investment or financially, all of it. And I want to create a space and a vehicle that my daughters could eventually own and take a hold of and continue to create more healthy environments for kids who need it. So you've, you've got, always had this real success and competitive mindset. And when you get into business, a big part of that manifests itself in people, how much money they can make. Mm-hmm. So tell me how you approach your professional life with regards to how you how you measure success. Yeah. What the, is it about money? It's about your community impact? Yeah, that's a great question. I was actually a former teammate. I'm not going to say his name because I'm going to call him out a little bit. But, you know, he says... Um, you know, how much money he makes. That's the scoreboard for him now. And, and this I, is in his post-football life? Yeah, somehow? yeah. And I, I understand that. I, I get that. And, you know, I don't I don't disagree with it, but that's that's just not my pursuit, right? Like, I don't, I'm not looking at the bottom line trying to figure out how much revenue we're bringing in and how much money we're going to make. Yes, we have to make money to keep the lights on, but at the end of the day, I don't actually care about the bottom line. As long as the bottom line is taking care of the, re- of the expenses, what else are we doing that's actually making an impact? Because, you know, long term, like, I can't take this money with me, right? I look at everything we do through the lens of love. And my chief operating officer, she's probably annoyed with how much I talk about love. And I know my wife, like, she she could sit up here and and recite everything that I talk about in regards to love. But, you know, love to me is it's not dependent on how much money you have. It's not dependent on the location in which you live. It's not dependent on all of these materialistic, tangible things that don't really impact love. And the reason why I know that is because, number one, I'm looking at the lens through my daughters who don't care about any of that stuff, right? All they care about when they wake up is, where's daddy? Does daddy love me? That's all they care about. And you can't tell me, like, you know, yes, does financial stability help folks not focus so much on survivability and be able to spend more time on quality time with their family, with their friends. Yes, that, that is an aspect that is important. However, the folks who don't have the resources and the access that we do, they can also experience love and they can also experience love in a very profound way. So when I look at the lens of our investment vehicle and trying to say, okay, are we, how are we showing love to the folks we're investing in into the community that we're investing in? How are we showing love? That's the real return of investment for me, right? And I believe wholeheartedly that if we do that with that lens, it will come back tenfold, you know? And that really matters to me is doing it that way. And so you know, I'm, I'm gonna... Um, put you on the spot here because okay. I don't know if this story is real, but I've heard this story about Nordstrom. Okay. Um, that an individual uh, had come to Nordstrom to return something. Do you remember this story? I think I know where you're going Was with it this. a shoe or a tire? Tire. Tire. That's what it was. Well, you know, it's nice you mentioned this, Doug, because in fact, there is a Nordy Pod episode where I, it's, it's called The Tire Story is True. <laughs> and so you could listen to that, but yeah, the essence of the deal was we own these stores are actually in Alaska that we'd since closed. But we bought these physical stores and buildings from a different business that actually sold things like tires. And mm-hmm. so some guy comes in there, you know, a year or so later after we're selling clothes. And he goes, I don't know what's going on in here now, but, you know, I bought these tires. They didn't work out. They said I could bring them back. And, you know, the easy thing would have been to say, well, we don't carry tires. I mean, and that's completely reasonable. Yeah. No one would expect us to take back tires. Right. But the guy was like, 
he knew that our system was one of empowerment and people using good judgment. And so rather than following some strict bunch of rules, he's like, well, this guy did buy tires from this building a year mm-hmm. and a half ago. They were like 30 bucks or something. Like he ends up doing it. And then it, it takes on this whole mythic status. Like mm-hmm. if we'll do this, what wouldn't we do? Yeah. And so I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what your point is, why you, you asked about it. Well, but. I mean, you, you take that story and you, and to your point, it's become a, a legend yeah. for Nordstrom, right? Yeah. And the reason, what, what's the reason why? The reason why is because this individual who, you know, came to return these tires was seen. Yep. And was, for lack of a better phrase, was loved. Yeah. And that matters to people. Right. And I, I would I would venture to guess that that story has impacted a lot of lives that then is the reason why they shop at Nordstrom is why they support Nordstrom. Right. And so that's the same. That's the return of investment. That's what I believe. If we do things in that way, if we're truly and genuinely serving people, the money will come. And it's not just because we're, you know, we're bringing in revenue or, you know, we're selling a product. It's no people want to support good things that other people are doing because it impacted their lives for the betterment. And so that's that's how I operate. That's how we think. That's how we move. Jeez, that was really good. That that's that is true. And it's, you know, it's one of the things that we talk about here a lot. And maybe some of it has to do with the fact my name is Nordstrom. We're trying to play the long game here. <laughs> you know, a lot of businesses like trying to make money in the moment. And it's kind of the point you make like how do we define success here? And money is clearly part of it. We're a public company and we're you know, we're measured by that, those outcomes. But the, our ability to d- deliver those outcomes, particularly consistently over time, has so much more to do with the values and the cultures and our approach. Mm-hmm. And I, that's kind of an easy say, hard do, but that's the stuff we aspire to. Yeah. And I think the world needs more of that. So you, you sound like you're a busy guy. You got this family agenda. You've got <laughs> this company. You're developing stuff. You're, you're doing community work. I know you, you were a Weren't you the, like a fundraising chair for United, United Way, King County? I, was. I mean, you know, you got a lot of stuff going on. So it's all great. And I, I applaud you for, you know, how you've been able to take all this energy that you, you'd you learned over your life and applied it to something like sports and then being able to turn the page and, and keep applying that intensity energy for other things that's, you know, bringing you satisfaction. But I'm curious, like, you know, it, it, do you think about it? It sounds like along the way for you, it wasn't so much about a goal. You were in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think about it more this way in terms of your life and the runway of what's going on and where you see yourself and what you're hoping to achieve? Or you still feel like you're living kind of day to day in the moment? Yeah, living day to day in the moment still. You know, don't get me wrong. We have plans and we have, you know, a five year business plan, 10, 15 year business plan. But, you but know, I mean, even for you personally, you know. Yeah. Aside from that, because well, tomorrow's not promised, and so I don't, I don't get too bogged down with trying to make plans for the future. What I try to do in the moment is just I, I try to be as present as I possibly can, and I try to make good decisions as much as I can based on my foundation, my faith. And again, I look at my daughters, and I think to myself, like I, you know, I would love my daughters to you know, grow up, go to this school, have this job, get married to this type of person, have this type of life, right? Like, yeah, I would love to plan that out and hope for that for them. But the truth of the matter is, is the, the, the what's gonna give me the best chance for them to live that life is that if I focus on being the best husband and the best father that I can in the moment, and that gives them the chance to do all of those things. 
Wow, this is great. I mean, I, I so much appreciate your perspective, and uh, it's inspiring to me. I mean, I don't know that I was fully expecting to to feel that way after talking to you, but I I, you know, I just want to let you know I think it's great your approach, and uh, I applaud all the success you've had. So, Doug, I mean, thanks so much for doing this. Of course, I appreciate you having me. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just may get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the NordyPod. And make sure to tune in next time when we dive deep into all the history and excitement surrounding our biggest fashion event of the year, the Nordstrom Anniversary Sale. I think this was my first year when I was 12. Our merchandiser, head of all shoes, came into a stock room and challenged the team to do $18,000 in the first day. He said, if you guys can do that, I'll take you for drinks to the Space Needle. Wow. And uh, and we did it. And everyone was so excited. And I was so excited because I was going to the Space Needle. Uh, the 12-year-old stock boy was not invited <laughs> to for drinks at the Space Needle. I was crushed. But it was so much fun of, of how intense it was and how the team came together. It was a blast. Join me in welcoming back my brother Eric and cousin Jamie, along with several other Nordstrom leaders, and even maybe a few customers, to talk about all the preparation and execution for this unique summer sale. Next time on The Nordy Pod. Pod.